Welcome back to uh, The Professor and the Hack. We've kind of been in a bit of a hiatus, but here we are at 103, uh, sitting on your tropical island, putting up the uh, barriers, were you? PVO, The Professor? <laughs> it's, it's appalling weather today, but uh, yeah, what week are we into in lockdown in Sydney? Is it week nine or week 10 now? It's certainly a number of months. I like to tell my children we're into our third month. Mm, um, there you go. With a lot a more to go. Time. So it would seem, yeah. Look, um, I wanted to talk about Afghanistan a bit because that's urgent and pressing on us. But let's get straight into the vaccine stuff, because we're seeing now a real shift in the language, a real determined shift in the language from the prime minister about uh, opening up. He is now peddling hope uh, with the opening up plan. Uh, I've got my doubts. Uh, we have to do it, but I've got some doubts that it's going to be quite the uh, the golden uplands that uh, it's being sold to us. What's your take on all of this and how it's shifted, PVO? Yeah, look, I mean, I think we definitely have to open up. Uh, you know, obviously, at some point, the, the debate at the edges is what those numbers need to look like to open up. And then I think going to your point, Hugh, what does opening up, in fact, look like? I certainly don't think it's some panacea uh, out the other side of the pandemic. I, I wrote the other week uh, in The Australian that I actually think that historians will look back 100 years from now and regard this as the pandemic of the 2020s, not the pandemic of 2020 that spilt over into 2021. Uh, and that's simply because history tells us that pandemics do tend to last a decade or more. Uh, in fact, we learned the, long, the wrong lessons almost from what happened in 1918, because there were so many other events around it, World War I, World War II, the Great Depression. It, it was an unusually short pandemic, uh, you know, buttressed by bigger events even than it in some respects. So I, I'm not surprised that it's going to be a tough opening up, or I won't be surprised if it's a tough opening up. I think a lot of Australians might be surprised because we did have this false notion even as early as the start of this year that, oh, we're going to get vaccinated, we're going to come out the other side and everything's rosy in a vaccinated post-pandemic world. But what we're really looking at, and we see this when we look overseas, opening up as necessary as it becomes, I think, for mental health as well as for the sake of the economy, which is what the government's really steering us towards federally. I think the, the reality of an open Australia is that we have many thousands of people getting uh, the Delta strain, uh, many dozens of people uh, week to week potentially dying of it. Yes, it's the flu season in terms of the percentage of people who catch it passing away from it once you're vaccinated, roughly. However, the difference is in a standard flu season, far fewer people get the flu versus how many will get the Delta COVID. And therefore, by definition, the, the raw number of deaths will move up as well. And all of that, Hugh, is before we even talk about concerns about how they actually, you know, categorise the percentage of people who who are getting vaccinated over 16s at this point in time. What about younger people, particularly school age, the impact on going to school? These are all, you know, important debates about how you open up. But I think that the general principle that we must open up is right. It's just about timing uh, and people have to not go into it with rose-coloured glasses because it ain't the end of this far, far from it. It's interesting, isn't it? We're about 25% fully vaccinated in Australia today as we speak. Uh, the United States has more than double that uh, in the low 50%. Uh, however, they still have over there a large proportion of the population appear to be vaccine hesitant for political and other, so you'd call it cultural reasons. Anthony Fauci saying there's somewhere in the order of 100 million 
uh, adults in the United States who are not vaccinating. Their death toll is running at 1,300 a day. That would equate to 100 people dying a day in Australia. Bear in mind, they've got twice our vaccination rates currently, 100 dying a day. If you look at the New South Wales outbreak, the Delta outbreak, which is what's triggered all these lockdowns, the total death toll, as we speak, is 75 over the whole span. So the question is, as we open up, are we yet steeled to the reality of, if not 100 a day, then certainly on those numbers, the expectation that you're going to be getting at least dozens of people a day, a death toll far higher than we're currently tolerating mm. at a lower vaccination rate. And then the other question to it is hospitalizations. And I know that uh, paramedics are burnt out. I know hospital emergency departments are burnt out. I know there are calls out now for volunteer doctors to pull extra shifts in various places, that things are getting frayed now under lockdown conditions. And there's talk that the government is going to deal with this. They're, they're alive to the issues here. But it's not a matter of just throwing money at it, because chiefly what's missing is staff. And you can't instantly get uh you know, nurses, paramedics, you certainly can't get doctors and surgeons and respiratory physicians and, you know, intensivists suddenly springing up out of nowhere. And they're the kind of skills that we're going to need. So, you know, this is, this is where we're talking about. It's not the green sun that uplands. Exactly. Exactly. And look, it's a, it's a wicked problem because there are, it's a pandemic uh, and there are no good options. Ultimately in a pandemic, there are just lessers of evils. I suppose would be the way to look at it. And I am starting to take the view, of course, from the comfort of having had two doses of vaccine, uh, as has my wife. We're concerned, though, as parents with a 12 and a 14-year-old that they are yet to be vaccinated and they're not so young as to be, you know, borderline immune from it that, that we seem to get the view that the very young are in terms of, you know, their reaction of, of the level of seriousness. So I worry about that. And of course you worry about other strains, don't you? And the mutations that the virus might go through. Uh, but I am coming around very strongly actually to this idea that some version of opening up will become important for the education for the of children, for the mental health of everybody, and certainly for the economy as well. Uh, not that you put the economy above, above people's welfare, but there are no good options. It's a wicked problem because even if, you determine on the balance of it that the lesser of evils is to get opened up and to tolerate the higher rates of infections as well as deaths uh, that we've talked about, uh, you are still, even if that is your view, uh, you are still you know, facing all sorts of complications and problems along the way. And that, I think, is or has been one of the, if you like, downsides to the massive upside of being in Australia where we've done so well managing the pandemic versus the rest of the world. Uh, we have been uh, cloistered and uh, shielded from the worst of this, unlike in the United States or the UK. So we see downsides to what happens in an opening up in a way that those countries that have been ravaged by COVID just see upsides, even though they're going through additional waves now and facing sort of rolling lockdowns at different points in time. Uh, but there are no good options, Hugh. Uh, it's, a, it's a pandemic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, let's just be thankful that we're not in the middle of World War One or World War Two in comparison, um, because this is a lesser of evils to, to a scenario like that. 
Yes, indeed. We're very thankful for that. Uh, interesting, by the way, if you Google up uh, vaccinations by country, you can get the uh, the World in Data website, or the New York Times also does it well. It shows you where vaccinations are around the world. It is noticeable that across Africa, uh, vaccination rates are are almost non-existent. You look at Nigeria. Two percent or something like that. I well, think, N- Nigeria has over two hundred million people. Uh, tropical location, less than 1%. Egypt, 100 million, around 2%. And and this is where the argument comes in that if we ignore the vaccinations of people, such, you know, billions of people, Southeast Asia is almost completely unvaccinated, then uh, you're just leaving open all these wonderful possibilities for new mutations to arise. Uh, we're not dealing with them, but uh, I, I guess... Uh, commitment to globalism has never been as strong as we thought. Bring it back uh, just a little bit more close to home. Uh, if you look at the protesters and if you look at what goes out on social media from those who support the protesters against lockdown, one of the really angry, you know, noises that gets made is around this notion of vaccine passports. That is the iniquitous proposition that in order to get certain things like get on a plane, in a Qantas plane, certainly get to get into a, a sports venue to cheer on your team or to go in to see a concert or anywhere where there's a crowd of people, you will need to show that you are vaccinated. In other words, that freedoms will be determined by that piece of paper or whatever's in your phone to say that you've been fully vaccinated. What are the politics of that, particularly for uh, the liberal side of government? Well, I think the politics are extremely fraught and complicated, uh, depending on timing for a start. Let's first, though, uh, get rid of uh, the false equivalence uh, that some rights activists around these sort of things draw when they say it's the equivalent of making people of colour sit at the back of the bus or it's the equivalent of having gender-based clubs that exclude uh, women uh, in particular, for example. There is an enormous difference uh, that, that is sort of simpleton logic because, uh, you know, your, the colour of your skin or, or the composition of your gender does not impact on the health of others. Uh, it's as simple as that. So uh, excluding people can, who can are also un- can also make another point. The color of your skin and your gender is uh, with the with the possible arguable exception of gender being a social con- all that kind of stuff essentially is outside your control. The decision as to whether you're vaccinated or not is almost entirely in your control, unless you're in a rare category of people who who are un- unable to get vaccinated for some other complicating issue. Absolutely. And, and I was actually going to get to that as the second component as well, because the, these are the elements to it. You know, it doesn't, the color of your skin, the makeup of your gender does not impact on others. It is not something that you can make a determination over. Now, that's not to dismiss completely. It's just, that's to dismiss the false equivalence of that argument because it's absurd, but it's not to dismiss completely uh, rights-based arguments when it comes to freedoms uh, attached to one's right to be vaccinated or not be vaccinated. But we live in a society of freedoms to and freedoms from. Uh, and, you know, rights uh, are also balanced by responsibilities. And so when it comes to something like this vaccine and this particular variant, the Delta variant, as well as frankly COVID more broadly, uh, there are responsibilities 
alongside rights. And whilst you might have a view that you have a right not to wear a mask or you have a right uh, not to be vaccinated, you also have a responsibility. Now, that responsibility uh, is less so, I would argue, around masks, even though I'm, I'm, not, I'm a mask wearer, but I, I think it is less of a responsibility around masks when you look at the data and the evidence, but it is one hell of a responsibility when it comes to being vaccinated because of the implications of that in terms of the capacity for you to carry the virus catch the virus, pass it on, and so forth. And, and we're talking about people who, are, they already do have the right not to be vaccinated, but then where we are curtailing rights, a lot of it is around private enterprise. Some of it is public, you know, getting on planes, going to visit, um, you know, going to restaurants, going to football fixtures. Uh, these are not inalienable rights, uh, I would argue. They are simply rights that have been constructed in the society we are in, but that is a society that also has responsibilities. And in the context of a pandemic, it is the responsibility of an individual to get vaccinated. And if they choose not to, because we do have a lot of rights in our society, then there are still consequences attached to that, just not jailable consequences, because that would be inhibiting somebody's rights too strongly. I wonder if the motivator for vaccines for some of those who are still hesitant is, is as they start to see the death toll rise, and where the evidence clearly shows that death toll is rising among those who are unvaccinated, that essentially there's something outside, if you like, state coercion. It's just viral coercion. And, and, and on that, Hugh, can I make this point as well? Because, you know, if you start to say you need to be vaxxed, I mean, we already know that, you know, things like the flu vaccine, for example, are required if you even want to paint a wall at an aged care facility. So this isn't a new thing requiring vaccinations. We are broadening it, to be sure, um, but it's not a new thing. Now, if you have a scenario where you need to get vaccinated to attend a footy match or to walk into a pub and have a beer, if you're the kind of person who sees that and goes, oh, bloody hell, okay, fine, jab me because you want your beer or you want to watch your footy, you weren't exactly the target audience of someone who had some huge rights-based concern about getting vaccinated. You just couldn't be bothered. Uh, or on balance, it didn't bother you or matter to you or you didn't care about the society to which you owe a responsibility as well. It's a much smaller percentage of people who would see the, the lost right of having the beer or going to the footy who still stand strong because for whatever reason they're an anti-vaxxer and they're very sceptical uh, and cynical uh, and distrusting of government. Uh, and and that, that is the smaller percentage. And one of the reasons for doing this, by the way, and requiring people to have the jab to be able to get those sort of freedoms in the society we live, it's less about curtailing rights, frankly, and it's more about weeding out um, the people who aren't really fixated on this, but for whatever reason, don't feel responsible to get the jab, but ultimately don't really care if they get to have a beer, they'll get the jab. Yes, I do wonder how many people's uh, attitudes towards the vaccine is coloured by the fact they just don't like needles very much and uh, they find some <laughs> other excuse for it. Uh, look, there's a lot to talk about, uh, particularly in Afghanistan at the moment and how that's going. There's other stuff that's on the table. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a moment. Welcome back. This is episode 103 of The Professor and the Hack. I am indeed the hack, Hugh Rimminson, and with me, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Um, Peter, we're seeing, uh, well, the distressing scenes out of Afghanistan, this last scramble to the line uh, to get people out. Uh, the numbers that have come out after that initial flight with 26 people were on board never went, oh my God, this is going to be totally too little too late. Um, but the numbers have gone up, uh, still nowhere near enough, though, to protect 
and give protection to people who are now in huge uh, risk of being rounded up and killed by the Taliban because they helped us. What's your take on Afghanistan today? Look, I mean, it's obviously complicated, uh, and in a sense, it's 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 its own wicked problem because you either accept some version of col- colonialism, essentially, uh, if we're going to stay occupying Afghanistan forevermore, versus the realities that the whole reason that you go in in the first place, quite apart from the moment in time around September 11, uh, is to try to bring democracy and, and rights to a broader community. Uh, but uh, my criticism is really more reserved for the way that we have left. Uh, there is no easy way to get out. Uh, But, you know, governments are at pains to tell us, I think the Prime Minister did this in one of his interviews, that they saw this day coming. Well, (laughs) you can't have your cake and eat it. If you saw this day coming, even if it rushed up on you a little bit, then why did we not do more to plan for it? And that's a criticism of the international community, not Australia on its own. But I mean plan for a more orderly departure, plan for a capacity uh, to be able to get out the people that helped us who are now very much in harm's way. And you're still leaving behind a war-torn country that's about to have rights eroded profoundly, particularly for women. But I can accept the argument that on balance, as awful and tragic as that is, there was no alternative other than continuing colonialism, which I'm not in favour of either. Uh, But the way that we have departed has been unacceptably bad. I'm not so critical of the first flight out being small. I mean, I think it was the Germans that had a similar scenario. And as you mentioned, it's ramped up since then. I understand the difficulties on the ground from what I hear. I'm more talking at a bigger picture level over recent months. There have been plenty of requests and cries uh, for the government to start the process and get going and do more to try to protect those who helped us when we were in there. And it was just crickets, you know, nothing was happening. And whether you blame the politicians who are ultimately responsible or whether you blame DFAT and defence for botching it, uh, these are all live discussions. And and equally operationally, Hugh, something like the closing of Bagram Airport. I mean, what the hell was going on there, That the airbase there? That was much more attuned to be able to do this and not to mention the prison facilities that were attached to it. Yet the Yanks gave that up just a few months ago uh, and now we're in this awful situation that we're in. So, so many things that have gone wrong, even if you can take the broader view, which is what Joe Biden says, which I'm not um, disinclined towards, which is that you can't stay there forever. Yeah, it's funny you say, who do you blame? You do blame the politicians. You must absolutely blame the politicians. They uh, they completely should have prioritised the protection of those who uh, had supported us. Uh, they knew that there was at least a um, a considerable risk. In fact, it was planned. It was factored into their planning that the government would fall. In fact, most analysis on it was just simply a question of when. Most analysis said that it would take a little bit longer. Nevertheless, it was plainly going to get more difficult over time to get people out, and we should have been right at the front, leading in the process to get out those who wanted to get out, who were at huge risk from the Taliban. And we saw rolling up through the country, Uruzgan, the province in which we fought and died and put in the bulk of our work, has been Taliban controlled now for months. And if you and and I think we might have mentioned this earlier that I've been covering the Ben Robert Smith defamation mm. case. And um they knew, the court knew, the federal court knew that uh, they had to get the Afghan witnesses out of Uruzgan province because they were no longer safe there. And they did the interviews with the Afghan witnesses out of Kabul. And they 
uh, expedited that hearing. They'd shut down the court hearing because COVID travel limitations had made the rest of that particular um, federal court uh, action, which is going on for months and months, that had to go on ice uh, because you couldn't get witnesses in and out and their legal teams in and out in and out of Sydney. But they had a special hearing to get those Afghan witnesses uh, coming in out of Kabul because they knew that it was going to fall. Now, if the federal court knows that it's about they're about to lose that line of communication, uh, then the government has no excuses. And, you know, I've been I'm perhaps a little bit more highly colored in my views in this because I've been talking in recent days to um, to ex-ADF personnel who are desperately trying to get people, not just those in in Kabul, but those who have, who they're trying to get out of Uruzgan, smuggling them into Kandahar in the hope that they can get, Kandahar's fallen to the Taliban, but in the hope that they can somehow get them paperwork and smuggle them up to uh, Kabul to make the planes before it all shuts down on the 31st of the month, there is almost no chance. And the prospects for them are close to hopeless. I spoke to one man, Nasir Ahmadi, who was an interpreter for the Australian troops uh, in Afghanistan, he was shot very badly wounded in uh, an action in which an Afghan soldier opened fire on Australian troops, killed three Australian uh, troops, wounded a bunch more. An interpreter alongside Nasir was killed, a friend of his. Uh, he was badly wounded himself, was patched up and then was allowed to come out to Australia. But his father was kidnapped and has disappeared, presumed dead by the Taliban because of the actions of Nasir. He's now trying to get out his brother and two sisters. But he said to me yesterday, it's too late. It's too late. Mm. They're in Kabul, but they haven't got the paperwork. It was too late to get the, the done. And and he's just just stricken by the thought that that his action has will lead to, he believes, the murder of his brother and two sisters because I've already had threats against them. And, and the bit which concerns me about this is a wider thing. This is a Labour Party talking point to a certain degree, but it's also true. On bushfires, Scott Morrison was on a holiday in Hawaii and didn't see a reason to come back. He was too late to the party. On Afghanistan, well, let's go to vaccines. He was too late. It's not a race. It's too late. He was too late to get going on vaccines. On Afghanistan, we're seeing a pattern. He was too late to get on the front foot and save people who will now die as a result of his inaction. It goes to him. The buck stops with the prime minister. He was too late. If you look at climate change, the, the IPCC report is plainly indicating that uh, the, the world is heating at a faster than expected rate. Australia is incredibly vulnerable to the consequences of climate change. We hear from Barnaby Joyce and the rest. Oh, we don't want people in the region to carry the, you know, to pay the bill, to pay the ticket for us taking any action on climate change. Who do you think is going to pay the ticket because of climate change? A warming planet, a warming Australia is going to hit the regions even harder than the cities. And what are we getting from the government? They're too late. They're too late. All the time with Scott Morrison, he's too bloody late. And then he puts in a flurry and there's a lot of this and there's a lot of that and a lot of arm waving and they bring in the military regardless of what it is. And it all looks very 
you know, and he's in charge because he's called out the army. Bushfires calls out the army. You know, Afghanistan, he's got little, no option but to call out the ADF. ADF is called out, you know, guarding borders between Queensland and New South Wales and obviously involved as the head of the vaccination rollout. And so it looks like he's doing something. He's still too bloody late. He's always too bloody late. And that's the thing which concerns me about uh, this government. It doesn't look like it's going to do him any harm. You know, the latest polling in the um, nine newspapers and the Sydney Morning Herald on the Age says he's doing pretty well. But, you know, at a certain point, you look at a guy and say there's a pattern underway there. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's hard not to escape that conclusion that there is a pattern there that he's always uh, five minutes too late. Uh, and it's 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 a problem uh, because, you know, you can understand that it happens now and then. You know, government isn't perfect. Leaders aren't perfect. But the pattern is what is so disturbing, as you point out there, Hugh. Over and over again, he's always too late. And, and the one example where he wasn't too late uh, which was, you know, around the beginning of this pandemic and being able to get Australia safe and secure from what ravaged the rest of the world uh, was, I mean, there were some good decisions, you know, shutting down flights, for example, to China, I think was was one of them that was a direct federal government decision. But there were others that were just good luck, being an island nation down south on the globe, that certainly didn't hurt us. And then there are others which are well discussed, which is that he was dragged to this point, kicking and screaming to shut Australia off by the premiers. And if it hadn't been for them, he would have been too late in line with the pattern of all of his other behaviour that you just went through from Afghanistan to bushfires, you name it. So, yeah, look, it is worrying. Conservative governments often are a little bit late because, you know, they would argue in a broader sense that they don't rush to failure the way that progressive governments sometimes do. But this that is not an excuse for the Morrison government because, frankly, it's rushed to failure, failure on other things. Uh, you know, we won't go into those. But that, that is a traditional thing that you will see rushed failure by the left in between being ahead of the curve because they're the progressives and you will see stodgy, slow-moving conservatism, which sometimes is good but sometimes can be bad. Now, Scott Morrison doesn't fit neatly into that paradigm. Uh, he is just late. Uh, and seems to be permanently stuck in the mud. And and you wonder when it will politically catch up with him, if at all, uh, frankly. Uh, I think I don't think on Afghanistan it will, um, because you know, for, for a lot of voters, I think that you know there's there's an online concern about what happened. There's a momentary thought about it, uh, and then give it another couple of weeks, and a car crash will dominate the nightly news much more uh, than the displaced people of Afghanistan, which might rate a mention at some point in time. Uh, but, you know, that that's what happens to international events. The one that I think is more likely, if anything, is going to catch up with him, it's been so late on the vaccine rollout. But, of course, he gets to choose the timing of the election, Hugh, and, and he won't have that until we're at a much higher rate by then. It's a matter of whether people's memories are long enough to be frustrated by it. And whether the death toll has climbed in. I will give him credit for one thing. They were quick on JobKeeper. Uh, he, as, as Prime Minister, you know, he, he can... Uh, claim credit for that, although obviously Josh Frydenberg was very much driving that with, uh, uh, you know, the Treasury officials. But even then, Hugh, let me, let me even then though, quick, they were quick on JobKeeper given the complexity and size of it, but they still had to see, if you remember, uh, those lines at those unemployment queues before any of that was in place, and then they were quick to respond to that. So they were still playing catch-up. I mean, they should have foreseen as a government uh, that come that Monday morning there was going to be massive 
queues at, jo- at, at unemployment places. And Labor talked about this, that hundreds of thousands of Australians lost their jobs before JobKeeper came in and had to go on to JobSeeker, who might have otherwise been saved by JobKeeper. So, yeah, I give them credit for it, don't get me wrong, but let's not lionise it too much, I would say. Yes, true enough. So what do you, how do you think the government is running then? Uh, if, if you look at it, there's, there's some interesting polling around. We don't spend too much time on polling, but uh, um, it doesn't seem as though they're being damaged too severely uh, right at the moment. No, I mean, I think they, they have their issues. Part of it, I think, is that, you know, it's a two-horse race and I'm not sure that voters necessarily are enamoured by Labor as the alternative or Anthony Albanese as the alternative Prime Minister. Uh, the bigger issue for me, though, is even though they're travelling OK right now, there's so much water to go under the bridge between now and the election uh, in terms of the vaccine rollout, in terms of the timing and the incumbents, which I mentioned, getting to choose that timing. They may even have an early budget before going to the polls. More likely, though, they'll go to the election, you'd think, in March next year now. Uh, he wanted to go this year, of course, because he wanted to have that recess of Parliament through September in the early weeks of October, then call an election for November and have almost a 10-week gap in parliamentary scrutiny uh, and go into the polls with all of these marginal seat MPs having that chunk of time campaigning in their seats. But the vaccine rollout problems kiboshed that. Uh, I, I think he's still got the upper hand going into this election, certainly. But having said that, they're going for a fourth term, which is never an easy thing for a government to do. But they'll paint themselves as an earlier term government than that because it's only Scott Morrison's second attempt at re-election, having just taken over the leadership ahead of the last election. So all up, uh, you'd have to think they're the favourites. But one big thing that gets in the road of that, and we'll just see if Labor's able to exploit it or not, is the state-by-state tensions that exist and what happens in states like WA, and Queensland. On the, I mean, the coalition have so many seats to lose in Queensland and Western Australia. They can't really pick up seats, but boy, uh, a switch in circumstances could see them lose the election in those two states or even one of those two states quite easily. What we'll have to wait to see is, do the issues run in their favour around things like, for example, mining and resources where they've got a lot of positivity or indeed around opening up the borders in tourist areas of North Queensland, which are more uh, open to that? Or does Mark McGowan's annoyance uh, at how he believes his state is being treated over West impact on West Australians come polling day? Uh, You know, someone like Christian Porter is going to have problems holding his seat and there are other much more marginal seats than that. And in Queensland, you know, Anastasia Palaszczuk has been one of the biggest critics of Scott Morrison amongst the premiers. So, you know, where those partisan allegiances ultimately line up will be absolutely fascinating. They could go either way. And just briefly, the strong uh, disapproval polling for um, Anthony Albanese, which generally gets phrased as a question as how well do you think, uh, um, you know, the opposition leader is doing his job Um, is I always wonder in that in the person's mind when they're responding to that, they could be people who are Labour voters uh, who are who put down a disapproval against him because they just don't think he's carrying the fight hard enough, but they still vote for him. Um, Yeah. And then there are those who, do, who, you know, who don't want anything to do with the Labor, don't want anything to do with him, and they'll disapprove of him. Um, you know, how, how much do we draw into that high disapproval rating of uh, Albanese, or is he really that much essentially on the nose? I think he's a little on the nose, uh, and I do think he has negatives. But in, in a broader sense, I don't pay much attention to opposition leaders' personal satisfaction ratings. I think it's much more relevant to the incumbent, uh, whether they're sitting at 
net positive or net negative satisfaction because that speaks to where the government is at. But in opposition, unpopular opposition leaders can win elections. Tony Abbott taught us that at the federal level. And when you look at state level, people who went on to become popular premiers were deeply unpopular as opposition leaders before they won elections because the mood for change was on. Jeff Gallup was deeply unpopular. People forget that before he became WA Premier. Brax was deeply unpopular before he became Victorian Premier. Bob Carr was deeply unpopular before he became New South Wales Premier. So it is not uncommon for unpopular opposition leaders to win elections. What's much more relevant to me is where the Prime Minister or the Premier of the day is at None of which is to suggest that Anthony Albanese doesn't have some negative baggage that he has attached to him the same way Bill Shorten did. Mm. And let's not forget John Howard, deeply unpopular, and then yep. <laughs> had, a, yep. had a fair while in the lodge. Uh, PVO, great to talk to you as always. If you're listening to this and you haven't got vaccinated, go and do it for heaven's sake. Uh, and we'll talk again soon. See you, man. Take care. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.